Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. The radio and TV version of the show air in over 12 states. This includes both coasts and Silicon Valley. The show also airs in the UK, Caribbean, and Australia. For full show times, plus past episodes of the TV and radio show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. We just launched a free online community to connect past guests, listeners, and others. This community will allow you to network, chat on Slack, or get help with anything else, and a lot more. If you're interested in joining the community, buying some merch, sponsoring the show, or signing up for the newsletter, please go to buildingthefutureshow.com. I want to invite all of you in the Building the Future community to join me at SUPEX, the Startup Expo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, this July 26th, where I'll be the MC. SUPEX is one of the largest and best startup conferences in the U.S. and the official gathering of the Building the Future community this summer. SUPEX has cutting-edge content, a cool startup competition, and a half-day forum this year called Hashtag Women for Women, the largest gathering in the U.S. in 2018 of angel groups, seed funds, and BC funds focused on female founders and female entrepreneurs. For more information, visit www.sup-x.org. I hope to see all my Building the Future friends there. Welcome back to the show. Today we have John Hamill. He's the founder and principal of Austic Companies, helping business owners evaluate, remodel, and prepare for eventual sale of their companies. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think what you guys are doing at Austic Companies is actually really kind of interesting and, and fascinating. And I, I, I'm always kind of just fascinated um, kind of with, with what you guys do and, and kind of this, that space. But maybe before we kind of get into all that fun stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, <laughs> that's been a, it's been a fun journey. Um, when I was younger, I grew up on a farm. Okay. My dad was the mechanic for the farm. And, and so I learned a lot of interesting things about hard work and, and cleaning out uh, chicken coops and routes and unmooring business and all of that. And then when I was probably about 12, my dad decided to go back get his teaching degree. So he went, did that and then drug us over to by Seattle in Seattle, Washington. Okay. And that and did a lot of different things. Um, I could just go on and on of all the things I've done, but it's been a very good thing that I did. And then from there, I met my wife at college and then I moved down to Southern California Okay. What and did you take in college? Co- just, just for, sorry to interrupt you. So yeah, that's an interesting story. So I was trying to head to go into the Air Force, and one of the things that prevented me from doing that, I was taking flight aviation, okay. and I found out halfway through, and I went for my night solo uh, approval that I was colorblind, and that pretty much killed my my future in aviation as far as uh, being a big pilot or uh, other than I wanted to uh, just feel planes, as my uncle would tell me. So from there, I switched my major into business, and then I continued in a uh, finance major, and that's where I continued until I graduated uh, a few years later. Okay. But in between that, uh, I dropped out of college and went in and started a massage therapy company and started a vending company. Okay. And then I did a whole bunch of other things. <laughs> but it was those two experiences that really 
you know, prompted me to go back, get my finance degree. And when I finished that, I was working as an assistant in commercial real estate. And then I had the bright idea from one of my friends to move on the whim from California to Tennessee to start doing insurance for a year. And then after that, it's like, you know, I wanted to trade and do investments. And the funny part about that, I tell everybody, was when I went into insurance, the first thing I asked my the guy that was going to hire me, as I said, you know, I just got my finance degree. Do you think I could do trade stocks? And he said, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, so I went there and I realized that trading stocks meant selling lots of life insurance. And I was trying to do financial planning and I wanted to do something more. So I, my wife and me, from that point, we moved up to Chicago and I started working for GE Finance. Okay. And they had a what they call an introductory broker dealer. And just that the broker dealer does the commission based products, but usually custody all the money at somewhere like uh, Pershing or Schwab or some of the bigger uh, custodians. Okay. But our representatives were independent accountants, and I spent the first year uh, recruiting independent accountants into do, doing financial services in addition to their practice. And then from there, I moved over to what they call a fee-based uh, product, which is a very popular item in the investment community and a lot of what they call fee-only advisors. Back then, it wasn't really known much, and I had a lot of fun growing from there. We started around $200 million in assets, and in seven years, we reached about $3 billion in assets, wow. and I was working a lot of hours. And that's the high level from that, and then I decided, you know, my, my mentor, he decided to retire. Okay. And I started finding out that I worked really good on her because they had actually been the previous business owners that GE had uh, bought. And then they spun that out as Genworth Financial. And from there, I left and I came here to Colorado. And I decided that I was going to work as an investment advisor here. And along the way, uh, I had ideas of succession. And our opinions changed, and that did not come to fruition, so we sold the company. And in the process of that, I stumbled into talking to other financial advisors about what do they have to do to move on to their ne next thing. And in the process of that, I started discovering that, you know, one occupation that has older people in it that are looking to do something next actually goes to all industries and I started broadening my scope to what I, I primarily do today. But that's kind of the high level. If you want to ask more specific questions to each place, I'm happy to answer those too. No, that's that I think that's a good kind of high level of what you you've kind of done in the past. But I, I really kind of want to focus on on what you guys are doing at Oztech because I think you kind of have two sides to the business. Is that, is that correct? There, There is a couple of uh, businesses that I do. Primarily, my experience the last 18, 20 years has been the investment side. Okay. And, and to explain the other side, which is the business transition side more fully, is 
I, we saw a lot of clients that were business owners that would come in and give us their portfolio after they'd sold their company and, and they said, Hey, you know, fix this and make it, make it work. Okay. And of course me being the young, young curiosity kind of guy I am, I always said, why, <laughs> why did you sell your company? You know, you're generating five to 700,000 a year in, in, and now you're handing me a portfolio of $3.5 million and your expenses haven't changed. Um, how, why, why did you even sell? And it was out of that conversation and many, many more conversations that I decided that there was a big gap in business owners being able to realize the 20 some years that they put in a business, sometimes it's 15, sometimes Sometimes it's 35, 40 that they have put into their business and then they try to figure out how, how to get out of it and there's a whole different, so many different reasons why it goes wrong at the end. So I created Austic Business Transitions as a form of, you know, trying to figure out how can the business owner, how can they, you know, take business, right? Like. Before I engage merger and acquisition and get on a six-month to nine-month, maybe even a year or two uh, engagement that just pushes me out the door, do I even want to sell? Am I ready to sell? How much do I need to sell? I mean all those questions um, are tend to be neglected as soon as you engage actually signing up to sell your company. So that's, that's the two sides of the business was kind of like how do I – how do I get them from, you know, deciding that they want to sell to the other side of it is, okay, now we identified that, you know, if things aren't quite where I need to be, what do I do next? And so I'd say, well, I've got to bring on a whole bunch of partners um, into this process to be able to make those adjustments, whether it takes, you know, as little as six months on some things, some things it takes seven to eight years to fix wow. to maximize or to make it available for them to actually, you know, leave their business. So the two sides of the transition is just evaluating it. And then what I like to call is, is really just remodeling it. Buyers tend to want to see a certain way in a business and how it looks and feels because they don't know it as well as the business owner. Sure. And from that standpoint, you can run a very successful business, but if it doesn't meet what a buyer wants to see, uh, you're kind of stuck to liquidating or just walking away from the business or staying in there until eventually, you know, the business, uh, you leave the business, you know, against your will. I see. Okay. Interesting. So, but how do you, like, if I'm say looking to retire and do I, like, how would you work with a company like how how what's your d typical kind of how how do you work with a company like that or or just like you probably have better examples but but how do you kind of do that decide whether it's you know a six month transition or eight year transition and kind of everywhere in between like what do you guys do and how do you work with a company to kind of eventually get them sold? Yeah, that's early on when I started this. That was probably my biggest struggle is to figure out exactly the same things that they were. So I went out to a lot of business owners that had already sold. I went to the attorneys. I went to the accountants. And I, and I said, you know, if you could ideally figure this out, what should you actually have to have in place? 
And out of that, over the last several years, we've produced a what I call an evaluation between two and four hours to go through that we work through and about 171 questions. Not all the questions pertain to every single business. And that's really the nuance. When you're looking at a business is you're looking at how do I evaluate this business to this industry to what but this buyers we're going to want to see. And that largely is a difference between size. If you're under a million in revenue, you have a different picture and less certain less needs and more other needs. If you are, you know, mid-tier somewhere about 3 million in revenue, 2 million in revenue to 10, 15, maybe 30, uh, then you have a different, you know, evaluation that you kind of have to look on. So what we did is we took kind of like the top top you know, 171 area or questions in 23 areas to look at and said, if you could identify these areas as weaknesses, how would it impact your price? And is this a critical question to be asking? So when we step into a business owner, I don't really know, know much about that business generally other than the principles behind stuff. But once I walk them through that questionnaire – and getting an idea and a value. That's what prompts everything back from the expertise of the business owner. Ha. I, and then that prompts the next stuff as far as on what do we do next? Does that answer your question? Okay. No, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Or did I, I lose I think the, the thing that's, no, no, I, I think that's good. I think that's interesting. I, I think that the thing that's a bit, um, I, I think like a lot of people, especially kind of from when they're in a business, they don't even really understand what they need or don't need, right? And kind of what's important. And I, I'm assuming, correct. and correct me if I'm wrong, that different industries obviously require different things. Like obviously if you're in the tech space or if you're in like oil and gas or something, it's probably different or is it not really? Is it, is it kind of everybody kind of needs to say, see generally the same things and maybe there's a couple things that are different between the different industries? I would say that probably 80% if maybe a little higher, it is very standard things they want to see. Okay. From a from a principal standpoint and structural standpoint, there's got to be certain stuff in there. I mean, the most common everybody seems to know is you got to have your financial records in order, and they got to you know they got to really jive with your tax returns. And okay. And it sounds so simple. <laughs> It sounds simple, but you would be surprised how often um, those things. Sure. And largely, some of that has to do with the fact that the business owner is is running their books a certain way, and then they're having their tax person do it a different way, and it actually fixed. the The smaller you are, um, the more issues you have. I mean, QuickBooks is tends to be a good tool for a lot of business owners. But a lot of business owners soon realize when they start a company that there's a whole bunch of, you know, stuff to learn about a simple product like QuickBooks that they have to run. And then do I need a cash, you know, basis or accrual basis? And I'm no CPA, but a lot of this stuff is is just mismatched from the get-go. And a lot of it is just cost. And then it seems to kind of well, we got away with it and it's fine and it works, changing things on here to accommodate how my business runs. And then finally they get to a CPA that takes a look at it, has to re remodel everything. And sometimes that CPA is, you know, 
doesn't know as much as they should in a certain area. Okay. That also, you know, creates other issues. I could go on and on. <laughs> There's just – I mean – No. I, I, let me tell you one other thing I think that's – Go keep going. Sorry. Keep one going. One other yeah. thing that's really common that I find – so let's say you have an LLC S-Corp, right? Well, one of the requirements okay. that you should have is that you have to keep your your meeting notes, right? And you got to keep sure. them up to date. However, I find that um, – like for instance, one of the businesses I have going, you know, uh, here in November to sell, they, when I went back through their stuff, it's not something that impacts your everyday day-to-day business to do that stuff, and often right. it, it gets ignored. So for the last thirty-some years, that pretty much has been put on the back burner, or not. So, what is the initial risk? This is what I found from an attorney. If you're not doing the meeting notes, it's probably – this is from a litigating attorney. Uh, one of the sure. easiest ways to actually pierce the corporate veil when you get sued is to ask for that business owner's meeting notes. If they do not have them at all, they are no longer a corporation. They are no longer protected by the LLC, which means now oh, all the personal wow. assets are up for grabs. Now, if you take that to the buyer's side, right – that's another point. Is it impact the business, how it's done, and everything? But is it a trust factor, a risk, all of that involved in stuff? Well, enough for the buyer to basically come in at the deal and negotiate a discount just based on that. So, and this is where the buyers tend to try to intimidate the sellers in order to take heavier discounts than they really, really should. And simple things like that can make all the world of a difference. And I'm not saying it's a major one, I'm unless you get sued. And it, it's another factor that most business owners aren't paying attention to because it doesn't impact their immediacy of today. And we know that business owners, the biggest thing that impacts them is the immediacy of, you know, where's my cash flow? How am I paying my rent? How am I paying my employees? You know, what's the next contract? How are my clients happy? And all that stuff takes forefront. And then when they someday get towards the end where they have to sell, they've been spending so much time and some often the reason they're selling is they're burned out, which means they've got themselves into a jam, which is called the angle of, of uh, not scalability, right? It's, it's, they get to a point where they just get it done. You'll hear, this, you'll hear this often like with business owners. They'll tell their employees, they'll come out, hey, this is an issue, and they're like, hey, just get it done. Just get it done. Well, the problem is when you start young, and early, you're doing a lot of salesy stuff and you're doing all that stuff and you're meeting clients and you're growing your business and then you gradually get into the operational mode and then you spend so much time in operations and then you're trying to solve problems and solve this and solve that. And so instead of taking the time to sit back from every issue and go, how do we prevent this in the future? What seems easy when you're small to just fix it, later it becomes 50 fix-its. Pretty soon, the business owner is fixing sure. everything, and their employees are fixing everything, and there's no time left whatsoever to actually think about when they're going to exit, what they have to prepare for, and what they got to do, because their whole time is is just, um, you know, it's really consumed by all these day-to-day activities. And then you engage with merger and acquisition, and now they ask you 
about three to four hours a day to produce documents and we need those you know for the next five months we need to do this and we need to do that and you're already maxed out at 68 70 hours a week already on you quickly can see where it's the surprise factor creates a whole bunch of problems towards the end and then when the end comes whatever negotiation hits the table you have they have to really seriously consider that if it's not where they want it to be to where they have to actually go backwards in order to get it and whether they that's why I had business owners coming to me saying hey just make it work because they had made a decision after you know nine months into the deal of all the due diligence and the pain and headaches and insults that come through all of that that <laughs> that all my god I gotta just you know what I just can't deal with this anymore I was burned out before I'm way burned out now Sure. So, so how do you work with a company to solve that? Because that's got to be huge. To like, that's got to be a huge challenge. <laughs> yeah, it is a challenge, and and that's probably the reason why I developed that evaluation. One was biggest okay. challenge is this: I can spend a whole week sitting in the side of a business and gathering a lot of data, right? But we're we're up against the same issue again. The business owner has only so much time generally that I'm meeting with, they're usually swamped with the amount of time that they've got that when they're asking me to evaluate and stuff, if I told them, hey, look, I can get a really good picture if I spend 40 hours walking through your business, they would look at me and tell me to go take a hike, right? And sure. they wouldn't understand where I was coming from. So that was, how do I narrow it down to a, a two to three hour just to get a snap? Where they're at because the only way you're going to know forward is how do I measure up to what buyers want to see and often they always I've heard so you know I'm fine I have a very successful business I, I have 15 in revenue 15 million in revenue why wouldn't a buyer not want to buy me and that scenario came up the other day uh, with a three partner firm and the the reason that I started to talk to them, engage with them, is because a buyer came through to them and said, hey, I'd like to buy your company. And they said, hey, we're open to that idea. And when he got done, he said, I'm not I'm not going to buy your company. And they that just totally put them back on their heels. And they went, we're $15 million in revenue. Why would you not buy our company? And this is what I see very common day in and day out. Just because you're generating a lot of revenue – is not the reason why you and so it, it's there's a lot of surprises in the way but that evaluation once I start just that a snapshot of getting them a picture to figure out okay we have these areas if they want to do go take that information and build it out themselves we're more than happy to do that for them right the the point is what's more important to the business owner is they get a picture of where they are compared to where they need to be. And the sooner they can do that, even if it's seven years in advance, uh, it's going to improve a whole bunch of things. I know I'm being general, but did you want to ask some specifics? I'm going to answer maybe more. No, I, I think that's really actually quite interesting because you're, you're right. So I, I guess the the thing that I, I'm I'm guess most curious about then is what types of stuff I know you kind of covered this a little bit so far but like what types of things should kind of people be doing 
to make sure they're ready to either maybe reach out to somebody like yourself or if they, you know, get that call from, uh, you know, somebody else to say, like, we're looking to purchase this thing. Like, how is there things you can kind of generally do if you're, you know, open to that or if you're not open to it at all, then I guess it doesn't really matter. Or should you kind of always potentially be ready to, you know, sell this thing if the right person comes around or company comes around? Well, I have a, a philosophy I've developed now that seems to prove true uh, again and again and again. And that is, if you just to sell today and, and make it that happen, your whole life improves. Your whole um, excitement back in your business improves. Let me explain. If you're, okay. you're swamped with everything else and you and you're spending so much time just fighting fires. No buyer wants to see that because they're not coming in okay. to solve all those problems. Now, what they'll pay for is a liquidation value of your assets, and then they'll figure out how to take your assets and incorporate it into their model. But if they're going to pay a goodwill, which is the difference between your, your asset value and what's what you're going to pay um, – that's the way I look at it. I'm sure there's more <laughs> academians and, and people would say sure. differently, sure. but that's the way I simply look at it. Then you have to figure out how to get rid of those, those issues that are happening. It's often difficult once you're in the middle of it to be objective until you can actually get off site. So I would recommend the business owners, you know, if they're thinking about it or even considering or they're dealing with a lot of issues and problems today, the best thing I can – and this is talked about all over the industry all the time, you know, working in your business and working on your business. And the term is is well used and, and described in many ways, but my take is this. You really need to get yourself you – need, you need to start finding ways of, of letting and, and empowering your employees or finding the right employees you can empower to scale. That's just an employee standpoint. The other thing they can do, start doing now that's important for the buy um, prep is really to start measuring and processing and start documenting everything. One of the biggest things I see is from that get it done attitude is that there's no documentation. So if I'm okay. a, if I put myself in the buyer standpoint, and that's the other thing. Owner, look back at your business and say if I saw the same business out there. What would be more that I need, right? What would I not like to see? Would I buy my own business, somebody out there, and I didn't know how it was running? The buyers don't know the history of the last 20 years, 15 years, 7 years of how you got there or how you have in your head that you can work out of it. That is a documentation process you have to show them. If they're asking, what's your processes or what's your – you know, uh, hierarchy structure, right? Who's the top? Who mm -hmm. who reports to who? And they're like, well, Joe over there, he reports to Sally. Sally reports to Joe. And, and then Bill reports to – and you can go on, and that's all verbal. Everybody kind of generally knows that. Mm -hmm. But a buyer wants to see exactly how that lays out. So documenting stuff, measuring things, it's it takes time to set up. But once you set up all of those type of things – and I say keep it really simple as much as you possibly can. All of the headaches that you're experiencing often tend to just kind of evaporate. 
and you start finding better things to happen. You start better putting better processes in place and you start documenting those processes. And then you actually have the employees held responsible to the processes. And if they can't, you know, incorporate the processes, you have a much easier uh, job actually letting the employee go because you're like, hey, that's, I say this so many times, that employee, you tell them, I like you to death, but that is not your process. I will help you find your next process. If it's in my company, great. If it's not in my company, you know, and there's a lot of different things you can do after that, you know, to get them onto their next thing so I can find the employee that matches up with that process. You have things like that and documentation. Um, buyers are going to go, hey, I can see how this works. It's almost like you're building a franchise without actually doing a franchise. If that makes sense. That's an interesting way of putting it, actually. Yeah, it totally does. It's interesting. But that's what buyers want to see. They want, you know, at the smaller revenue, yeah, they're coming in to buy themselves a job. At the higher, they're not, not really wanting to buy themselves a job. They're wanting to buy a business and a revenue. And if you're going to bring in, you know, private equity, and they're going to look at all this stuff, too, to fix. And if they find out that... You know, a lot of this stuff is way too hard. And I know another company down the street that basically looks the same but has everything more documented and I can grasp it and run with it a lot faster. You start seeing that selling a selling a home, when there's a lot of homes on the on the lot or for sale, the buyers start and less buyers, they start getting real picky. When you have very right. few businesses being sold and you have lots of buyers, they tend to want to accept a lot of things depending on how desperate they are to live the dream of ownership. Sure. No, that, that makes actually, that makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. I, I, I'm curious then, and, and maybe this is a, a bad example, but like, at least in the tech space, is kind of my background, and, and you always see these companies, there's been more companies than we could probably name um, in in an hour, but um, that, you know, get these like crazy, crazy offers, you know, maybe billions of dollars or, or something or hundreds of millions of dollars. And like they turn it down and then like six months to a year later, they're basically worth zero, right? right? Um, how do you, how, like how do you, because I, I always call it like the hot potato kind of thing. And like if, if you're the hot potato, you kind of need to sell, especially if you're kind of in tech and, and you're kind of riding this, you know, insane kind of wave and somebody makes you a crazy offer like that. You basically need to take it, at least in my opinion, because the chances of you actually becoming something and not just going broke is pretty small. Is that kind of fair to say or is that kind of, you know, what's your experience on that? Because yeah. that's kind of been what I've been reading in the news my whole career for the most part. But you know, is that kind of naive or, or what's your thoughts on that? The, I think it comes, it comes really from who's, whose idea is it and what's their vision for whatever they're building. I, I believe that really strongly. If, if you okay. are just building something, let's say that you're just building a, an app or something, right? Or some kind of software that you're going to try to sell to the Amazons or the Microsoft or Google or sure. any of the big guys, right? Anybody else for that matter. If that's your only mode of actually uh, 
build something that you know that eventually they can build themselves, you have to ask yourself, mm-hmm. how long will it take them to build themselves with all their resources? Because what I've seen is I saw sure. a, a company, I don't know, this is about four years ago, and they had this, and it didn't end up well. I'll just give you the <laughs> headlines of that. Sure. What ended up happening sure. is they built a software program and a mode of kind of a mode of business that would really well. In fact, it was so well that from what they told me, they, what happened was they came in and said, hey, we'll sell it to you for this to the big software company. And the software company said, no, we're not going to pay that. We'll pay this. And, and when they walked away and they said, well, okay, well, you know, there's no way you'll be able to build this. Well, you can't say that in the technology or anything else for that matter when you actually work with somebody that has billions of dollars to spend and throw at whatever it is they want. So what ended up happening two years sure. later, that software company actually came out with something very extremely similar, and their company went bankrupt mm-hmm. because now they're competing against somebody who has way more marketing dollars, way more you know, connections, more distribution, etc. If they had a vision for the company, like there was another tech company I was talking with a while back. They're going off after the big dogs to compete against them. A little different scenario. If, and this is where you like your cash burn rate and all that stuff comes into a into play. If you can't bootstrap it initially, a tech company of some sort and make it profitable or have a viable product mode and you're only building like an app or some kind of software or something that kind of lives on its own and can be bought, then I would say you're probably good at looking at selling it when it, when that dollars walk through. If you think you're going to build a company and a service that's going to do something better than the industry, um, which I always recommend, don't go after the big guys directly. <laughs> it's not a great strategy. Amazon sure. didn't do it either. Um, yeah, you're right. And so, Interesting. you know, if it depends on if you have a vision, you want to change the world in whatever you're doing and you and get it to a certain point. I mean, PayPal, right? The whole different angle as far as on how they built their company and what they were going after and what they did. And I'm not an expert on PayPal. I just know what I saw and where they went and how they developed and they got it to a point and then they sold, right? So yep, I would totally. say vision for your company is first and foremost, depending on what you want to do with what that is for technology and can it sustain itself as that model going forward? Because if you can't and you're just burning through cash and you got too many people, another example is another tech company that I talked to uh, about a year and a half ago. They raised uh, $7 million and they had a, a great idea. They They built it up a little bit. And then they threw all the money at hiring, you know, and then they quickly realized that their customer database outweighed, outweighed the, 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 their customer opportunity, I should say, was smaller than the amount that they applied for how many people employees they had. So they didn't really test the scalability of their client base of how fast it and they burned through all the cash, and now they're sitting at pretty much nothing now. And they still have a great product. Now they're having to build all the way from scratch without the funding, without. So I don't know if that answers in a long-winded way. 
No, I I think it's good. I I I I was always kind of curious to just to get other people's thoughts on that. The other thing that I think is kind of always interesting when when somebody's business model was always like sell to kind of Google, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, or whoever, like, you know, Apple, like, that's not, at least in my opinion, not really a good business model. Like, Twitter still makes no money. Like, they're not profitable. And they probably never will be. But yet, they're worth billions of dollars in in theory, or like, same as Snapchat, right? right? Which has always kind of mind-boggled me. Because, like, if you and I set up a brick-and-mortar store down the road, if it is losing money every month, you close the doors, but in tech, you can keep going for years, which has always kind of been fascinating to me. <laughs> That's true. It's kind of like being in the so, government. What? <laughs> yeah, I guess, hey, interesting. That's an interesting comparison. Yeah, uh, but I'm curious though, um, to kind of get your thoughts on um, maybe kind of from the employee side of things or, or, or the shareholder side of things when, um, you know, maybe they're more ready than the, you know, the leaders of the company or, you know, is there anything that they can kind of do to maybe help that along? As far as on taking ownership in the company or taking the company over, is that your question? Well, I, I, I guess a little bit of both, right? Because yes. I think as people retire and, and, and stuff like that, like maybe the employees want so, or a group of the employees want to maybe buy in or, or take over or maybe eventually sell it or, or whatever. But like, how do you even go about bridging that? So, yeah, it's, it, that is a great, um, it causes, I will tell you that that there's a, there is such a, um, a pull between that wants to buy and take over the company and the owners of the company allowing that to happen. The biggest obstacle you're going to find from the seller standpoint that employees need to understand is you're great at management, yes, but can you lead vision of the company to keep growing and keep doing something? Because if you are not a visionary and leader or and you may be, and it's not demonstrated that yet, which is my my next little po uh, point in there. But if you can manage stuff exceptionally well, there is a big difference, and owners often know that, that in order to actually go out, get new customers, build the next new product, innovate into a different area, you've got to show that, that somewhat to the owners that you got a better idea and you have about it that makes sense to them. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes you're an employee and you, you have a great idea and you can and you end up just leaving the firm and creating your own firm and proving it out. And that happens a lot too. For owners to be convinced they're going to hand over the business two things. One is they're always concerned and they always believe and it's actually sort of a myth. Uh the employees can't buy the firm. They don't have enough money. You can actually transition the business, and there's a whole different way about doing that. You have to really – and it takes some CPA and legal work to do it. But the overcoming the money obstacle is, is really typically not the biggest deal. It can be, but it's not typically um, the biggest deal. The biggest deal is if you're an employee is – 
can you be that next visionary to take the company in the next level and can you demonstrate that and make that happen if you can you're going to find out that you can actually start doing things like um you know non-qualified deferred comp right you can start putting in uh bonus structures you can you can maybe get some uh some stock in the company you know as far as on a small amount or buy get options for it or I mean, there's a variety of different ways you can go about that, but it's got to be tied into the profitability of the company. If you can demonstrate that, then you're along the way of convincing the owner that you may be that guy. But oftentimes we find when we're looking at companies, management is not the ideal because they tend to say, give me the vision, and then they're really good at going and implementing that vision. That's not what's going to keep the company right. in the future. Sure. Yeah, that's actually interesting because we have like a friend that um, he worked at a company. Well, he still does, to be fair, but he basically worked at a company since he was in his teens, you know, just kind of um, doing kind of just entry level kind of stuff. And he ended up working his way up to, you know, he's in he's in his late 30s now um, into actually being one of the partners uh, at this company. And his business partner is basically retired and he's basically bought his shares out but they're doing a transition over a number of years through dividends or, or some sort of like payment so he's basically making like makes yearly sense. payments to the guy to basically like take over the the business eventually but that his business partner is retired now he spends most of his time not even in the same city so um you know i, I guess that's probably a really simple example of kind of what you just talked about right Right. You know, he worked his way up. His the guy's son didn't want the to take over the company. He doesn't even work at the company, and, and so the guy was like, "Well, I like you. I've known you for decades. You know, I trust you. You know, you share a good vision, and you know, we'll I'll transition the company to you over a number of years. I don't really need a big lump sum payment of money. I'm retired now, and you know, it seems to be working good for them. I obviously I don't really pry into that, but." You know, at least they've been kind of transitioning for a few years, so it seems to be going well from an outsider's perspective, at least. Yeah, the, what you're just describing is what we call internal succession or transition, and I can tell you one thing to that. One thing I've seen that that has been a surprise to a business owner in doing that, missionary things, right? And there's a lot of benefits in that. You get to, for the benefit side, you get to keep the culture in the company if that next successor um, is of the same mindset. And you get to keep the vision and your clients and you get to, you know, everything you built over the years gets to sort of continue. I say sort of (laughs) because every new visionary has a little bit of a different take. And they see opportunity a little bit differently, and they're going to make changes. The difficulty is that new, that previous owner in that transition now has to become the mentor. And from visionary to mentor thing, visionary, you're dictating a lot of stuff to, hey, this is my vision. Go get it done, and they go get it done. As a mentor, it's like raising a kid. You have to allow them to start making the things in order for them to start learning. You so much, but as a business owner – and being a mentor, you know that it's going to impact some of the revenue initially because if the visionary is just not going to have 30 years of 40 years of experience to avoid problems you learned along the way. And so 
to let them get their training wheels and get them up to speed, you got to start taking some of that that risk to get them there. And that means that you really have to care about, uh, really care about, you know, your customers, the culture, the employees, where your business goes, um, to really go down that path. And it's not easy finding those people. So like your friend there, um, he's very fortunate. He found a good combination with a business owner who can see the values demonstrated. He's demonstrated and it's working, it's working for it. And it can happen. And it often works. Uh, for the existing company if it can happen. The difficulty, I would say, is I was another business owner I was talking with, and he was in the transition. It's not something that I worked on. But what ended up happening is he had a guy with him for 15 years, and what he did not realize is that the other guy had a different culture. And this is one culture that works really well to grow a business, and that is uh, clients first, employees second, and they take care of me as the owner. Now it's a set of priorities. Okay, interesting. What doesn't work is me, the business owner first, or maybe the clients first, and then eh, eventually the employees get whatever's left. If you take that model, I can guarantee you what ends up happening is you end up losing your good people and you end up bringing in people, and now you have to watch out for fraud and watch out for so many problems and high turnover. And you're always wondering why, you know, your employees aren't staying and what's the problem. And, and then, man, I just keep hiring bad employees all the time. I've heard them all. I mean, it's, it, it's just a cultural thing. And what ended up happening in this situation was the he had this guy for 15 years when he transitioned. And when I talked to him, he'd already transitioned percent of the uh, stock across to the, uh, this key employee. And luckily, he put in the agreement, which is what I always recommend when they start doing internal transition, it, uh, a point where it says, until it totally paid out, I can buy you back out and I can take the company back. So it's not an absolute, you know, it's like I can force you back out if I don't like you. So it's kind of a fail-safe aspect of it. What ended up happening, as soon as he went to announce to all of his employees after he had already transitioned 40% of the company over, two, one thing was really a flag was the employees started asking for – um, a higher bonus, which is like, wait a minute, uh, that doesn't make any sense. You're looking for ownership of the business. You're still thinking in the same limelight of an employee making any sense. Second of all is when he announced to the employees that this guy was going to be the new owner, within one year he lost 85% of his employees. He had to turn over of 85% of his employees. And what was wow. what I discovered and I helped him see was the fact that he – he himself, the reason he was successful is because he put his clients first, his employees second, and left himself last. And, of course, you put in a process to make sure you're getting paid and all that works, right? You're not just humbly taking no money. <laughs> um, I'm not trying sure. to imply that. But your, your priorities are, are of nature. His key guy he didn't realize, but all of his employees knew, was that he put himself first and didn't care anything about really the clients or he just did exactly what his boss told him to do and he was really good at doing it. But when it got down to it, everybody knew he, did, he didn't really care for him at all. said, hey, I've had enough. That's a bad future. The culture is going to be way different because we've experienced it, which is another recommendation I would say to your earlier question of what can they prep. Start talking to your admins. They're the water coolers of your business or your dispatch. They'll tell you more about your own executives than – than your executives will ever indicate to you. 
and your key employees. So find out those people everybody talks to. That's where you want to actually start talking about, you know, this key employee might take over the business. Hey, what do you think? <laughs> because I can tell you if a buyer goes into business, if they're really savvy, they'll be a, they'll be trying to go after those centers of influence that are really nobody pays attention to, but they know everything. Sure. No, that's interesting. That's actually really good advice. I never really thought of it like that, but it, it totally makes sense, right? That somebody coming in to look at buy would, would go to those kind of lengths to find out the information because they want to make the best decision possible for themselves, right? Everybody at the end of the day is looking out for themselves kind of number one. Like, I don't mean that in a negative way. I think we all do it kind of subconsciously, right? Like, you're going to look out for yourself. You don't want to buy a business that's going to tank, right? Like, that's just kind of a waste of money, right? Yep. It's, it's no different than dating or no different than hiring an employee. Sure. They, you know, there's a great, everybody has a great resume, right? You go and you list your business yeah, for sure. sale. The merger and acquisition guy, they do their job. They're say, hey, we have a lot of problems you want to focus in on over here. So as a buyer, what's your job? Your job is just like an employer. You're trying to dig out to find anything that could possibly blow and, you know, blow up. I would say there's two angles I, I, that really business owners or buyers are looking for. One is, will this business, once I buy it, blow up on me and cause me a detrimental harm? And two, if it does not, and it looks like it can be a viable business, how low can I possibly get the price to buy it? There's really only those two objectives. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense, but but John, we're we're kind of running out of time, yep. <laughs> so let's maybe close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and and the companies, and and you know hopefully some people reach out to you and uh, you guys can work together. Sure, I have um, I have a website. It's uh, www.austicbt. That's a u s t e c b t. dot com. I would write to my blog and read stuff there, and there's a lot more stuff on there. They can also link up to me on LinkedIn. I have a network uh, that I usually work with other business owners. It's now about 1,200 other business owners. So that's a great way of, of actually going in there. I post a lot of articles, a lot of educational. There's a group I also have for just business owners that they can go into and get a lot of uh, what I call competitive advantage uh, help. And that, those two angles tend to be really, really good. Other than that, they can reach out to me with my email or phone. My phone is 720-519-6073. Or they can send me an email to jhamel, that's J-H-A-M-E-L, at austicbt.com. I think that's quite a number of ways perfect. they can get a hold of me. That's perfect. Well, well, John, I really appreciate you taking the time into your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Kevin. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, man. Have a good rest of your day. We'll talk soon. You have a great Bye. day, too, as well. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. To join the free community, buy some merch, sponsor the show, or sign up for the newsletter, please visit the website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.